Hello, people of the way, blessings in Jesus. Uh, we're going to take a little pause from our normal study, and we're going to have a little topical message. And you might even call this like an introduction into 1 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, the reason why is because we have to understand what's happening with Israel here. In, you know, understand in the judges' era, the people have rejected the Lord. And the people, they're doing what is right in their own eyes. They've forsaken the Lord. They've become idolatrous. And it's the Lord who says to the prophet Samuel, and Samuel, he's not a little kid anymore like we saw earlier in the, in the earlier chapters. He's an, old, he's an old man. And the Lord tells Samuel, he says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And the whole time, Israel, they come to, you know, the elders, they come to Samuel. They say, hey, we want a king. We want a king like all the other nations here. And what they've done is they forgot what Moses told them. Remember Deuteronomy? Moses told them, no, you are a consecrated people. Do not be like, do not desire to be like the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Jebusites. Don't be like them, the Moabites. No, you are God's people, his chosen people, consecrated set apart for him and the lord is your king god is your king do not desire do not partake of the ways of these peoples do not partake of their their ways their customs their culture their idols their gods do not partake of those things you are god's special people and so here we are in first samuel and it's like whoa what in the world has happened and then we look at the span of, you know, from Deuteronomy and then all the way when we get into Joshua and then Judges and we see what happens over the course of time, how the Lord becomes forgotten. Under the leadership of Joshua and the elders, wow, things are beautiful. But then when that generation dies, the next generation that raised, that, 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 that grows up, all of a sudden they don't know the Lord. Think about what their kids are going to be like. And think about what those grandkids are going to be like. Generation upon generation of people who no longer know the Lord. And that's what's happening here in 1 Samuel. Except we see something so beautiful along the way is you see a picture of the remnant. Remember Deborah, Jephthah, Ehud. And here we are with Samuel. And it's like, wow, it's so beautiful to see, you know, uh, people who have not forgotten the Lord. While the masses, while the, while the multitude have forgotten the Lord, we see a remnant here. Very important to understand. And so the Lord, he's telling Samuel, hey, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. And the Lord says, give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. And the Lord says, Samuel, you just warn them. Just warn them that the king that they desire is going to be cruel to them. And it's going to bring harm and not good. And so this is why we're looking at this introduction, we'll say, of 1 Samuel chapter 10, because it poses some questions. It poses some very, very serious questions. Understand, when we look at the, you know, the, uh, 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 the, the life of Saul, or we look at passages with Saul, we have to look at his life because we're going to see things in chapter, we've seen it in chapter 9. In chapter 9, you know, Saul and Samuel, they're having a nice meal and it seems fine. In chapter 10, you know, when we study next week, Lord willing, we're going to see like, wow, the anointing. And it's like, wow, this seems, it seems okay. It doesn't seem so bad. And it poses some questions. It poses some questions because, wait a second, it seems to be like it's not so bad. And then with the pre-knowledge that we have that things are going to be bad, there seems to be a disconnect of sorts. With what we know so far, things seem okay with Saul. But 
Remember, we're at the beginning of Saul's account. We see like, you know, last week in chapter 9, well, look, Saul and Samuel, they're having a nice meal and seem, things seem to be okay. But this brings up this question. Is, is it all a setup? Is this whole thing a setup? Is, is, is Samuel participating in a setup job for the destruction of Saul and Israel? Because we have this pre-knowledge from 1 Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 9 that things are going to turn out not so good. But then in real time, in chapter 10, we're going to see like, wow, anointing. We see, we're going to, we're going to see the prayer. We're going to see prophecy. We're going to see victory. And in real time, we're going to see that things seem okay. But then we have this pre-knowledge that it's not going to be okay. And it poses this question, like, why is, is this all a setup? Does God promise good while having a setup job on the people? Does God promise blessing? while predestining to ruin? And now we come to doctrinal matters, very serious doctrinal matters. And, you know, when we say serious, it's not for the severity of the doctrine. If doctrine, you know, that's kind of easy. It's not for the severity of doctrine because if it doesn't align with Scripture and if theory doesn't align with Scripture, you take the doctrine, you take the theory, and you throw it in the trash. Whenever a doctrine or theory doesn't align with Scripture, you throw it in the garbage. False doctrine isn't severe at all. The severity, it comes when believers are seduced into it. You see? Look at the storm that hit Galatia. Look at that major, major storm that hit Galatia. Where, for Paul... You know, when Paul says, when he gives the account in Galatians chapter 2, when Paul speaks about the preacher guys who come in, he says, concerning himself and the preacher guys who come in like spies, and he says in Galatians 2, they seem to be something. Whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. And so the false doctrine presented by the preacher guys who came in, it wasn't severe for Paul because Paul knew, okay, that's wrong, throw it in the trash. But the severity came when believers were sucked into the doctrine that came into Galatia. And then that those theories that came in and that doctrine that came into Galatia, it was so strong that it pulled them away from Christ and it was so strong that it even got Peter. But for Paul, he just straight up says, makes no difference. These preacher guys that come in, makes no difference to me. God is no respecter of persons. At, you know, they, they seem to be something, added nothing to me. And this is a big problem in the church today. A huge problem in the church today. Where a lot of believers, they look at church size. They look at social media followers. They look at academic accolades. Theology degrees, certificates, divinity schools. And what happens in churches today is believers attribute to them clout. As if these are earmarks of a pastor, earmarks of a teacher, earmarks of a shepherd. But in the Bible, you won't find any of these things listed in the Bible as pastoral qualifications. You won't find a Bible verse that says, how many social media followers do they have? You won't find a Bible verse that says, oh, you know, where, where do they go to school? Where do they go to seminary? You won't see that. But yet, in the realm of man today, you do see it. But you will not find that in the Bible. Peter, what was his certificate? What was his degree? You see? Paul, how many social media followers did he have? You see? 
So what are we getting at? Why are we even, you know, if, if you've been walking with us for a while, it's like, wait a second, we're supposed to be in 1 Samuel chapter 10. What are we getting at here? There are sects in the church today who do say that God predestines people to ruin. God predestines people to destruction. And God predestines people, predestines people to hell. There are doctrines in the church and theories in the church today. And that's what they say of the Lord, that God predestines people to hell. They say that God creates sin. They say God makes people sin in order to achieve the end result of, you know, a, a person. He's, the person he or she, in accordance to their theory, is already predestined to hell. And in order to achieve that end, God makes them sin. You see? And this is according to theory. It fails to align with scripture, but it's according to theory. And they say that the non-elect, that they glorify God by their destruction, by damnation, and by burning in hell, they glorify God. And this is according to a theory. The whole time, the non-elect, according to their theory, they never had a choice from the very get-go. They never had a choice because it's God who has compelled them to sin. Since, according to their theory, they're predestined to hell. All in accordance to theory. And they even say that it would be more loving of God not to have allowed the unelect to be born. It would be more loving of God not to have allowed them to be born. This is all in accordance to their theory, but at the same time, all the while, they call God sovereign. In fact, they say it quite a bit. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And in these last days, in these sects, they're beginning to tell Christians that it's okay to take the mark of the beast. And let me tell you something, that's of Lucifer. That's of Lucifer. It's exactly what happened in Corinth. It's exactly what happened in Galatia to the body of Christ. It's exactly what happened to each individual that followed Alexander and Hymenaeus. Very important to understand. Nothing new under the sun. These teachers, these pastors, what they're doing is they're presenting another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. And you know what's happening? Christians are putting up with it. Just like what happened in Corinth. Just like what happened in Galatia. They're putting up with it. And these so-called pastors, these so-called teachers, they fail to account for the it is also written. And that's by design because if they were to account for the it is also written, they'd be discovered. Brother James tells us for a reason, let not many be teachers. Let not many be teachers. Remember, in these last days, these false teachers, they're giving false assurance of salvation, false assurance of heaven. And they say, go ahead and take the mark of the beast. You'll still be saved. It has no bearing on your salvation. And believers are putting up with it. Believers are putting up with it. So here we are right before, right in the middle of 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 1 Samuel chapter 10. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll be in chapter 10 next week. Lord willing. And we have a clash of theories. We have a clash of theories because, wait a second, we have this pre-knowledge that things are going to turn out bad. But at the end of chapter 9, it's like, wow, there's a nice meal. Saul and Samuel, they're having a nice meal. And then in chapter 10, we're going to see anointing. And it's like, wow, things, things look like it's perfectly okay. 
But then with the pre-knowledge that we have from chapter 8 and a little bit in chapter 9, with this pre-knowledge we have, we know that, wow, things aren't going to turn out okay. And so, is it all a setup? Is God setting them up for failure? And so with this clash of theories, clash of doctrines, every single doctrine, every single theory must be reconciled with the truth of Holy Scripture. The truth of Holy Scripture. And when you have a doctrine, when you have a theory, whatever it is, if it doesn't align, you take that theory, you take that doctrine, and you toss it in the trash. It's garbage. You cannot accept it. So we have to reconcile with the Bible. So we have this clash of theories. We have theory on one hand. We have the Holy Bible on the other hand. Now, what's better? Is it better to twist the scriptures to support a theory? That's what Lucifer wants. Or is it better to take any and all theories and throw them away in the trash when they fail to align with scripture? The latter is better. And so 1 Samuel chapter 10, you know, Lord willing, will be in chapter 10 next week. But it does pose these very, very serious questions. Questions that pertain to very serious doctrinal matters. Very serious theories. And the severity of these series, uh, theories and the severity of these doctrines, the only severity is when people get sucked into them. Just like with Paul. Remember, Paul says, hey, it makes no difference to me. Is You know, God has no respect to our persons. It makes no difference to me. But the problem was with the believers who got sucked into it. And in Galatia, it was so strong that even Peter got sucked into it. And so we look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. It's like, wow, anointing. Things look good. Nice prayer. It looks good. And we're going to see how slowly but surely it's like, wow, things seem fine. And so these questions, what's happening? What's happening? Is, is it all a setup? Did God lie about his promises? And remember, we must always, always, always account for the it is also written. Very important. We have to account for the it is also written. In Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew 4, Satan, he tempts Jesus, or he attempts to tempt Jesus. And Satan, he knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew exactly who he was and who he is. Satan knows. And yet Satan asked Jesus, if you are the son of God, the word of conditionality, if you are the son of God, when the whole time Satan knew, and Satan knows still to this day, he knows. Then what happens is Satan uses scripture, it is written, it is written. Satan uses scripture. It is written. And he proceeds to tell Jesus about God's divine protection. God's divine protection. Using, using biblical truth, it is written. And the whole time, he's attempting to seduce Jesus to commit suicide, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Look how crafty Satan is. Look how crafty he is. In his seduction, in his seduction, he uses the Bible. He uses biblical truth. Assuring he, the biblical truth that assures God's divine protection. But then Jesus responds, it is also written. It is also written. You shall not tempt the Lord. You see, on one side, Satan makes a case, a rather convincing case too. He uses the truth of scripture. 
But what he doesn't do, he doesn't account for the it is also written. Because Satan, he's a seducer. He was a murderer from the beginning and he wants to destroy. But with Jesus, Jesus does account for the it is also written. And this is something that Christians fall for all the time. Hook, line, and sinker. Don't forget, Satan is a fisherman too. Do not forget, Satan is a fisherman too. And Christians, they fall for it. You hear Christians all the time, I don't lock my doors because God will protect me. You hear Christians say, I'm going to bring this person into my home because God will protect me. I'm going to make these changes in my life and God will protect me. And you hear that, you look at that and you see it. It's like, wow, that's tremendous faith. It has the appearance of something good. Wow, that's great faith. Wow, that." He or she, you know, that, wow, they are absolutely convinced that God will protect them. And yeah, there's a Bible verse of divine protection. And wow, that's great faith. And a lot of Christians look at that and be like, wow, you know, that that's tremendous faith. Wow. But most Christians, and forgive me for saying it like this, but I, I call it like I see it. Most Christians won't see the fool. Most Christians won't see the unwise. Most Christians won't see the unlearned one who fails to account for the it is also written. A person, a Christian. A Christian says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and God will protect me. God will protect me because the Bible tells me so. The Bible says God will protect me. And then what happens? A couple days pass, a couple months pass, a couple years pass, and what do you see? Destruction. Destruction. Ruin. Why? Failure to account for the it is also written. When the whole time, from the very get, from the onset, the whole time, it was an attack. Seduction of Satan. Intended to destroy. But it was presented as something good. It was presented like, wow, look. The Bible promises divine protection. It's presented as something good. And when, when, when Jesus was presented with this attack of Satan, you know, the, the whole point of it was, you know, hey, commit suicide. Satan wanted Jesus to commit suicide. It is written, the angels will bring you down safe. The, the God's divine protection. It is written, the Bible says, a biblical truth. But then Jesus says, it is also written. And so we as believers, we have to account for the it is also written. Remember, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, if you've been walking with us for, for a while, a little refresher course, because we've been through the book of Hebrews already. If you're listening for the first time, go back and listen to our study through the book of Hebrews. You'll understand a whole lot more. But in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it is written, it is impossible for God to pseudomai. Sudomai in the Greek, it is impossible for God to sudomai. You know what that is? It is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to speak untruth. It is impossible for God to deceive or attempt to deceive by falsehood. That's impossible for God to do. It's outside of him to even do that. Now, knowing this verse, now we can start to eliminate certain theories Now we can start to eliminate certain doctrines that people have formulated. 
about how God works and his nature and character, now we can start to eliminate certain theories. We can officially brand certain theories as unacceptable because they fail to align with Hebrews 6, verse 18. Very important to understand. Now let's dig a little deeper. Let's dig some more. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 9, if, you've been, if, if you're a new listener, go back and listen to our study in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and get yourself caught up. But in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we have pre-knowledge. You and me, we have pre-knowledge that things won't end so well for Israel. But then in chapter 10 and further, we're going to see things in real time as they happen. And it seems fine, but we have this pre-knowledge that things are going to get sour. Things are going to decay. And so how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile this with the Bible? Is it a big setup? Is this a setup job and Samuel's in on it? Remember, 2 Peter, if you've been walking with us for a while, you remember a little refresher course. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 tells us that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. That's what the Bible says. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. So now we see the measure of time itself. The measure of time itself as different than mere mortals. You and me, we have not yet put off corruption. But with the Lord, who's not mortal, what's time to him? To the one who created the sun and the moon and the stars? What is time to the one who has decreed 70 weeks? Very important to understand. So how do we reconcile things further? How do we reconcile with the Bible? What people have this idea that God has set up Israel, that God makes Israel stumble, that God makes people stumble, that God predestines people to ruin. We take these theories. Now we know that God cannot lie. We know that God doesn't set people up. And so now we start to eliminate certain theories. But when we go further, now we're able to eliminate even more. But how do we go even further? And what I like to do is explain things using a marathon example. A marathon example. Let's say you and me, for example. Let's say you and me are at the LA Marathon, Los Angeles, California, Southern California. You and me, we're at the LA Marathon and we're at the starting line. We're at the starting line. There's a whole bunch of people. Some are, we know that some are going to run super fast and some are going to run faster than others. Some are going to jog. We know that some are going to power walk and some are just going to stroll. You and me, we're not participants. We're just observers at this particular point. We're just observing at this particular juncture. You and me, we're just observers. And we're just observing, we're at the starting line, the race hasn't started, and you and me, we're eating a hot dog. We're eating a hot dog, and we're sipping our sodas, and we're just people watching. That's it. And then the gun goes off. The gun goes off, and then boom, the crowd starts moving. People start running. Some are like super fast. You see joggers, you see the pow walkers, and everybody's off. You and me, we finish our hot dogs, we finish our sodas, and we see the last person make the turn, and that's it. We can't see people anymore. They've all, you know, some, the slowest of the slow was like a, 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 a guy who was walking and 
he turned around the bend. We don't see anybody anymore. And you and me, we're not participants. We're just observers. At this particular juncture, we're just observing. And then we get in my helicopter. We get in my helicopter. We're at Dodger Stadium. Remember, Los Angeles, California. We're at Dodger Stadium. We get in my helicopter, start her up, and boom, we fly to the beach. Santa Monica Pier. We go to the beach. And then we see the finish line. We see the finish line. The ribbon, it's not broken yet. None of the runners have arrived yet. They're still running their race. Some are at mile one. Some are at mile two. Some are at mile three. Some are at mile five. You and me, we're at the pier. We're at the beach, Santa Monica. And then we get hungry again. We get hungry again, and now we get some hamburgers. We get some hamburgers, you know, bacon cheeseburgers, and we have beautiful fellowship. You and me, you and me, beautiful fellowship, and we get some more sodas, and then we're just having beautiful fellowship and having a nice little meal. Before it was a snack, and now it's just a meal. And before it was at uh, uh, Dodger Stadium, and now we're at the Santa Monica Pier. And then we're having beautiful fellowship, and we see the first runner. We see the first runner coming. Man, that guy's a bullet. And then we see the next one. Wow, that lady, she's a rocket. And then more and more and more, they pass the finish line. And then it's all done. It's all done. The race is over. It's all done. But then we notice something. The numbers at the finish line, they're not the same as the numbers at the starting line. So what happened? What happened? So you and me, we go to the officials. We go to the officials and we start asking the officials some questions. Hey, official, what happened? How come the numbers now at the finish line, it's not the same as the numbers at the starting line? What happened? What, well, how come the numbers are different? And then the official proceeds to tell us, well, this guy didn't make it. This lady didn't make it. This, this person didn't make it. This guy twisted his ankle. This lady, she has a bum knee. These other people had heat stroke. Several people had to be taken away in an ambulance because of chest pains. Several had an asthma attack. You see, we start to see that, wow, you know what? The numbers at the finish line aren't the same as the, the starting line because along the way, something happened to them. Something happened to them that caused them not to reach the finish line. And then something else happens. I lean in towards you and I got a little smile on my face. And then I ask you a question. I say, hey, remember my helicopter? You, you know, yeah, I remember the helicopter. And then I say, hey, did you know that's a special helicopter? And then I start to tell you, hey, my helicopter, it's a time machine. It's a time machine. Time is irrelevant to my helicopter. In my helicopter, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. My helicopter is a straight-up time machine. And then I ask you another question. I say, hey, what do you say we go back to Dodger Stadium? And so we get back in my helicopter, and we don't just fly to the location. We don't just fly to Dodger Stadium. We do something different. We do that. You know, there's that too, but we do something different. We go back in time. We go back to the starting line. We leave the pier. We go back to Dodger Stadium. And we go back to the stadium physically and also in the manner of time. So now, the race hasn't started yet. It hasn't started yet. 
The crowds are there at the starting line. Except now we don't have hot dogs. Now we're a little thirsty, so we get strawberry smoothies. Now you and me, I have my strawberry smoothie, you have your strawberry smoothie. You know, I have my whipped cream on top and you have a little whipped cream. And we're drinking our strawberry smoothies and they're delicious. And in about five minutes, the race is going to start. It's going to start. Five more minutes, it's going to start. And then I lean in towards you and I'm pointing at a guy. And I say, hey, look, there's the bullet. Remember the bullet at Santa Monica? Look, there he is. And then you lean in on me and you're pointing, hey, there's the rocket lady. You see? And then we start pointing people out. Oh, there's the chest pain people. There's the lady with the bum knee. There's the twisted ankle guy. There's the guy who had the heat stroke. Oh, there's the lady that had the heat stroke. And so you and me, we have our smoothies. And you and me with our smoothies, and they're delicious smoothies. Except this time, we're at Dodger Stadium. This time, we have pre-knowledge of who will reach the finish line. And we have pre-knowledge of who will not reach the finish line. And because of the officials that we spoke to at the beach, at the pier, we also know why certain people don't finish the race, you see? And certain things that happen to them along the way. Within very specific confines of real-time events, which also includes individual choices in real time, each and every step, mile one, mile two, mile three, mile four, it's within the confines of events and choice. Very important to understand the marathon example. You and me, LA Marathon, Dodger Stadium with our hot dogs, Santa Monica, Santa Monica Pier with our hamburgers, and then Dodger Stadium again with our smoothies. Very important to understand the marathon example. Now, with this marathon example, let's look at Pharaoh. Look at Pharaoh. Yes, it is a biblical truth that God hardened his heart. With Pharaoh, Egypt, God hardened his heart. Yes, that's true. But that's like with our smoothies. That's like with, not the hot dogs. Not the hot dogs. That's like with our smoothies at the beginning of the marathon. Just like the bum knee and the chest pains before the marathon. The smoothies, not the hot dog, the smoothies. You see, the hot dog, that, that was when we, we didn't know. We didn't know and, you know, uh, we just didn't know. But with the smoothies, with the smoothies, where, you know, we've been in my helicopter and in my helicopter, it's a special helicopter. A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. With the smoothies, it's different. And God says to Moses, before entering Egypt... God tells Moses, I will harden his heart. Remember with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. Seventy weeks are decreed. Remember how time is. The creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars. What is time to him? And so God says to Moses, before entering Egypt of Pharaoh, I'm going to harden his heart. But then as we read the Old Testament account, we see Pharaoh in his marathon. We see Pharaoh in the marathon. Pharaoh at mile one, mile two, mile three, mile four. 
And what Pharaoh is doing, we can see it. My one, two, three, four, what Pharaoh is doing, he's hardening his heart. And as Pharaoh makes those choices at each mile point and each event, his heart reaches the hardest of pine. It gets super hard by choice and by event. And then it reaches stone. And that's judgment. You see, remember, the Lord is reactionary. The Lord is reactionary. God responds to obedience. He responds to wickedness. And he responds to repentance. And God responds to Pharaoh's wickedness. You see, Pharaoh hardened his heart during the marathon. Pharaoh hardened his heart. 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 And then, boom, judgment. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see? And then he begs the question, wait a second. Why did God say to Moses that he would harden his heart before he went into Egypt? Well, remember, smoothie, not hot dog, smoothie. You see? Very important to understand with the marathon example because it will help us to understand these biblical truth and the character and nature of our Lord. You see? Look at the other hard hearts that were around Pharaoh in Egypt. Look at all the hard hearts that were in Egypt. They all had hard hearts. But in the course of time, as the Lord made himself known, certain events happened as the Lord made himself known. And people made a choice and hearts became soft. And even these people who were hard hearts, even they advised Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, let the people go. Let the Hebrews go because their God is most high. Yeah, we have our gods and yeah, they can do the water to red and the frogs. No big deal. But the hail, the hail, our gods can't touch that. Our gods can't touch that. The Hebrew God is most high. You see? And so in Egypt, you see a plethora of hard hearts. But in the course of time, they became soft. Now, what was bad about them is they submitted themselves to the wrong leader. They submitted themselves to the wrong leader because they acknowledged God, but they yielded to Pharaoh. They acknowledged God, but they yielded to Pharaoh. You see, very important to understand how this works in, the, in, the, in, in this framework of the marathon example. The hard hearts and, you know, through events and their own choice, their hearts became soft to where they were even advising Pharaoh, hey, let the Hebrew people go because their God is most high. You see, they acknowledge God, but the problem with them is they yielded to Pharaoh. And we see this a lot with Christian wives, Christian wives, Christian wives, my beautiful sisters in Christ whom I love. We see it with Christian wives where they acknowledge the Lord but they yield to wicked husband. You see? Look at Korah and his followers. They acknowledge God, but yield to Korah. Now look, they're dead. You see? But the faithful, the faithful acknowledge the Lord and yield to the Lord. You see? And there's these very specific confines of a person's own choosing along with events and in real time, each and every step. And the Lord responds within very specific confines, very specific confines. And he's outlined them for us in his word. The Lord is reactionary. He responds to obedience. He responds to wickedness. And he responds so beautifully, so wonderfully, so lovingly to repentance. You see? 
Look at Alexander. Look at Alexander Jimenez and Demas. They started out well. They started out well. What happened? What happened? Did God set them up for failure? Was Paul in on it? Was it a big setup job? Not at all. Not at all. We use the, just like with Pharaoh in the marathon example, we use the marathon example with them. Within the confines of their own choosing, along with events, mile three, mile four, mile five, Alexander became apostate. Mile three, mile four, mile five, Jimenez became apostate. Mile four, mile five, mile six, Demas became apostate. You see? Use the marathon example. And also accounting for our study in Mark. Remember the, the pneumos and spiritual warfare, what happens inside the heart of a man? And then the satanic and demonic influence? Remember our study in the book of Mark? Very important to understand. There are all different, all these factors that are in play. And so when we use the marathon example, yes, look at Pharaoh in his marathon. Look at Alexander in his marathon. Look at Himenaeus in his marathon. Look at Demas in his marathon. Look at the elders of Ephesus. The elders of Ephesus, Acts chapter 20. Remember, if you've been walking with us for a while, the elders of Ephesus tasked by the Holy Spirit to shepherd the Lord, tasked by the Lord to shepherd. But in the course of time, what happens with the elders of Ephesus? They're overseers. And in the course of time, they let the wolves in. And some of them even became wolves themselves, not sparing the flock. That's what the Bible says. Acts chapter 20. Go and listen to our study through Acts chapter 20. And this begs the question, did God set up the shepherds? Did God set up the saints by using these overseers? No way. No way. Within the confines of their own choosing and events, the Lord responds accordingly. Within the confines of their own choosing and events. Within the marathon. You see? Within the marathon. Now, when we consider the marathon, for the natural man, for, you know, the, the everyday person, that's, you know, the marathon with the hot dogs. But then for the born-again believer, that's the marathon with the smoothies, you see? Understanding that there's a series of events, but within the confines of, you know, time having no restrictions for the Lord, we start to see how he sees. And we start to see how the Lord reveals to Moses, a, I harden his heart. We start to see how with Samuel, how the Lord says to Samuel, hey, Saul, it's not gonna turn out well for him. You see, because the intimacy that the Lord has with Moses and Moses is with the Lord and that's like the smoothies. Samuel is with the Lord and that's like the smoothies, you see. And so we, sometimes people look at the Bible and they don't see the smoothies. They look at the Bible and they see the hot dogs. They see the hot dogs and they think, okay, you know, this is how the Lord works. And then they create these theories. They create these theories of, okay, so if the Bible says this, then that means it was a setup job. That means that God predestined them to ruin. That means that God predestined them to hell. That means that God predestines them to, to destruction. And then they make theories on top of theories to support the theory. And they say, well, since the Bible says this, and then since God predestines people to hell, then that means that when people burn in hell, that must mean that they glorify God by that. You see? 
And that's not what the Bible says. Because they're looking at the Bible like the hot dog perspective. Instead of looking at the Bible like the smoothie perspective. You see? Very important to understand. It's very true. You know, with the, the overseers and the shepherds of uh, 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 in Acts chapter 20, the elders of Ephesus. Remember the Miletus meeting? The shepherds made a choice. Remember Paul says, after he says, I know this. After my departure, the wolves are going to come in and even some of you guys are going to turn into wolves. Now, is Paul boasting and saying, oh, look at me, how awesome. You know, while I'm here, this isn't going to happen. Is Paul boasting? Not at all. But it is true. While he's there, it doesn't happen. He says, after my departure, the wolves are going to come in and even some of you are going to turn into wolves and you're not going to spare the flock. That's what Paul says. You see, Paul's a warrior. A warrior tasked by the Lord to shepherd God's people. To shepherd God's people to paradise. You see? And Paul says, after my departure, this is what's going to happen. And so people today, they say, wait a second. The Bible tells me I have to submit to my pastor. The Bible tells me to submit to the overseers. And it's very true. Very true. Yes, submit to your pastor. Very true. But the Lord, the Bible, specifically tells us which overseer? You see, the Bible not only tells us what to look for in a pastor, but the Bible tells us to take heed to what we hear. Look at Judas. Look at Judas, where the Bible says, Jesus tells him, you know, the, 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 the disciples, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And a lot of people use that verse to assure themselves of heaven. But it's a false assurance. Because what happens with Christians, they assume themselves to be like John, to be like Peter, to be like James, with the assurances that they have. But then we look at the marathon of John, Peter, and James, each of them. At mile 1, mile 2, mile 3, mile 10, mile 20, mile 50, enduring and running the race. And Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And that was to Judas as well. Chosen by Jesus. Chosen by Jesus. Mile one, mile two, mile three, mile four, mile five. Pretty shaky there for Judas. And then we factor in Acts chapter one. By transgression, he fell. Mile six, boom. Indwelt by Satan indwelt by Satan. Did God set up Judas? Not at all. Within the confines of Judas, within the confines of choices of Judas and events that happened, within those confines, also understanding, remember our study in the book of Mark and in, in the Gospels of Mark, remember those, uh, the, what happened, what's happening in the pneumos? Demonic influence but within very specific confines of the marathon, events that happen and choices that Judas makes, Scripture was fulfilled. And sometimes I have these very long conversations with folks of certain sects. And then they tell me, wait a second, Judas was chosen, but it was to fulfill Scripture. It was to fulfill Scripture. And they rightly say that. But what that does, it makes it even more severe. 
It makes it even more severe for the believer today because there are scriptural truths, scriptural truths of names being blotted out from the book of life. Scriptural truths of depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Scriptural truths of falling away. Scriptural truths of apostasy. And these very sobering truths absolutely will be fulfilled. Absolutely. And the sobering question is, by whom? By whom? Turn with me really quick to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, very often misinterpreted passage of Scripture. Very misinterpreted. Written by Brother Paul. And in Romans chapter 9, look at verse 13. Romans chapter 9, verse 13. And in Romans 9, 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he, uh, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You see? And this is a very often misinterpreted passage of Scripture. Remember, Brother James says, let not many be teachers. He says that for a reason. Number one, the Holy Spirit told him to. But then number two, it's like, let not many be teachers because we have a lot of teachers today. And look at the mess we have in the church today. Remember, false teachers, false teachers will never, never account for the it is also written. Never. Why? Because they'll be exposed. They'll be exposed. And in these last days, you have these false teachers. They have these false assurances. And they even tell people to take the mark of the beast. It has no bearing on your salvation. That's what these false teachers are saying. You see? You take the mark of the beast, That does. there's no assurance of heaven. It's just the opposite. It assures damnation in hell. You take the mark of the beast, you submit yourself to a pastor who says, go ahead and take the mark of the beast, you'll still be saved. You know what that is? Hello like a fire. So we look at Romans 9, and now let's look at Romans 9, but let's consider the it is also written. And so Romans 9 verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not, exclamation point. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So we see here in Romans 9 and verse 13, Jacob, God loved. Esau, God hated. Now, let's look at the marathon of their lives. When we look at the marathon of their lives, we see something. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. 
Hebrews chapter 12. Well, you know what we just looked at in Romans 9. See, a lot of pastors, a lot of teachers, they look and they teach Romans 9 from the hot dog perspective, you see. But we don't do that. We look at Hebrews 9 with the smoothie perspective, you see. And so Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 14. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us about the marathon of Esau, along with warning too, warning for us, you see. And we see something when we look at the marathon of the lives in Hebrews 12, verse 14. It is written, or it is also written, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So now we know that without holiness, no one will see the Lord because it is written. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And in verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. You see, people read Romans 9 like the hot dog perspective. And they read Romans 9 like, you know, God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And I don't know why, but that's how it is. And have a nice day. God is sovereign. No, 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 no. Listen, God is sovereign. Absolutely. But remember what the Bible says. That the sovereign God does nothing without first telling his servants. And so you have these pastors today. They say, well, you know, we're so finite and God is so magnificent. We can't fathom his ways. God is sovereign. We cannot know his ways. You know what they're doing? You know what these teachers, these so-called pastors are doing? They're revealing themselves as false prophets. They're revealing themselves as false teachers. They're revealing themselves as false servants. You know why? Because they say, we're so finite, it is impossible for us to know the ways of the sovereign. But the Bible says the sovereign does nothing without first revealing it to his servants. That's what the Bible says. So these false teachers are admitting to you who they are. They're false. And Christians today, they put up with it. They put up with it just like what happened in Corinth. They put up with it just like what happened in Galatia. And what happened in Galatia is that people were being sucked away from Christ. You see? But not with Paul. It was so powerful. He even got Peter, but not with Paul. And so when we look at the it is also written. The Lord shows us what happened to Esau in his marathon, in the marathon that we call life. The Lord shows us what happened to Esau. Yes, it's absolutely true. scriptural truth that in, 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 in Romans 9, Jacob he loves and Esau he hated. But when you look at the marathon, the Lord shows us what happened to Esau in his marathon. During his marathon, Hebrews 12 shows us that along the way, Along the way in the marathon, Esau became defiled, profane, and a fornicator. You see? A series of events. And along with his choices, look what happened to Esau. He was unholy. And as a result, fulfills what is written. Without holiness, he doesn't see the Lord. 
And Hebrews 12 isn't just a history lesson to tell us what happened to Esau. Hebrews 12 verse 14 is a warning to us, a warning to you, a warning to me to pursue peace and holiness. Pursue peace and holiness. To be not like Esau, but to be like Jacob. You see, false teachers, they will never account for the it is also written because it exposes them. That's why it exposes them. Now you have pastors today. They make a lot of money. False teachers today, they make hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars on an annual basis. And if they start teaching that it is also written, it's going to expose them and people will leave them. You think they're going to start to teach the truth? No way. Why? Because their God is their belly. Their God is their wallets. You have the hirelings. You see? Very important to understand. And so let's go back to Romans 9. And in Romans 9, Romans 9, in Romans 9, verse 16, Paul continues. In verse 16, Romans 9, So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Very interesting what we see in verse 16. And there are a lot of false teachers today who make God bipolar. They turn God bipolar. Notice, by, by doing this, by turning God bipolar, they have no fear of the Lord. That's a biggie. They have no fear of the Lord. And making God bipolar, they say that God has his perfect will. And God has his permissive will. And some, you know, as if to suggest that, you know, that the will of God is imperfect. That God has his perfect will and God has his permissive will. And some, what they do today, they're even making God tripolar. And they're adding more wills to the Lord. That's in accordance to certain theories and certain doctrines. But when doctrines and theories do not align with scripture, we toss it in the trash. It's garbage. You see? So now, how do we reconcile verse 16? In Romans 9, how do we reconcile verse 16? We look at the, it is also written. Verse 9 says this in, 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 in Romans 9, or verse 16, verse 16. It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And this is very interesting because Paul says he runs. Paul says we should run. And he says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But then here in Romans chapter 9, the same vessel, the same vessel, Paul says, it's not of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And we look at this and it looks like a contradiction. It looks like a contradiction. But now let's look at the manner of one's running. Because it is also written, it is also written in Genesis chapter 20. Turn to Genesis chapter 20 really quick. And in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, about God's mercy, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, those who love me and keep my commandments. It's the very thing that Jesus says. It's the very thing that Jesus says. You love me? Follow me. That's what Jesus says. You love me? Obey me. You love me? Abide in me. 
No period. You love me, abide in me, and I in you. The very thing that Jesus says. It's the very thing that Brother James says. You believe? Okay, obey. If you believe, obey. Remember, the two are inseparable. Remember the package deal? Remember our study in the book of James? And so we see that God's mercy is conditional. And it hinges on obedience. It hinges on obedience. Remember, don't forget, don't forget, names can be written in the book of life and names can be blotted out from the book of life. How are they blotted out? Disobedience. Look at Esau. Disobedience. And so now we look at 1 Corinthians 9 and Romans 9 where Paul says he runs, that we should run, but then in Romans 9, it's not about running. But then accounting for the it is also written. Now we look at the manner of running, loving God and obeying him, you see? And that's what we do in our marathons. You and me, you and me, I'm confident that you run faster than me, but you and me, that's what we do in our marathons. We love the Lord and we obey the Lord. Very important, obedience, obedience. Esau's marathon, no obedience. Pharaoh's marathon, no heeding. Judas's marathon, no enduring. Peter's marathon, Chloe's marathon, Joshua's marathon, Deborah's marathon, Epaphroditus's marathon. They all have obedience and endurance, you see? And it's not without attack. Not without attack. Remember, Peter, he got sucked into the poisonous doctrine of Galatia, and it was Paul who rescued him, remember? Very important to understand within the framework of what the Bible teaches us. And that's why we use the marathon example. So let's continue in Romans 9. In Romans 9 verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Very important what we see here. And a lot of false teachers, they get away with their poison because of certain verses without accounting for the it is also written. Certain verses do appear to elude something. But when we look at the original manuscripts, when we look at text and context and codex, and rarely do we look at tradition. Remember the Septuagint math we did in the book of Numbers? It's rare, but it happens. It's when, when it does happen and where it's permitted, it's always, 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 always accounting for the it is also written. Always, 100% of the time. And so here in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, it does look like a setup job. It does look like a setup job because, you know, it is written here for this very purpose. I have raised you up and it's spoken about Pharaoh and it does look like a setup job. So how do we reconcile things? Well, raised you up in the Greek is to resuscitate from death and also to raise up again from ruins. And when we see this in Romans 9, verse 17, you know, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. And it's like, wait a second, to, to resuscitate from death and also to raise again from ruins. And what I think about is, have you ever, have you ever repurposed something that you were going to throw it away, but you repurposed it for something else? Say you have a t-shirt, you have a t-shirt and after, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, the t-shirt, it's got holes, the color is faded, it's got rips and, 
Instead of throwing it away, you use it as a rag. You're going to wipe your tools down. And that's what I think about when I look at this word in the Greek. When I look at this wording and application in the Greek. And let's take a closer look at the marathon of Pharaoh. The marathon of Pharaoh. Turn to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. And in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, it is also written, But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet, verse 17, as yet you exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go. As yet. In the Hebrew. In the Hebrew. You know what that is? As yet. It's repetition. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. Over and over and over and over. As yet. That's how it translates in the Hebrew. What did Pharaoh do? He exalted himself. He exalted himself. Positioning himself against God's people, Israel, the Hebrew people. He did that over and over and over and over. He exalted himself. You see? And then we remember the account when you look at uh, uh, what the Lord says to uh, uh, Moses. And then we see what happens in real time in the life of Pharaoh during his marathon, how he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, and then boom, God hardened his heart. You see? When the whole time the Lord told Moses, not with the hot dog, the Lord told Moses with the smoothie, I'm going to harden his heart. Just like you and me at Dodger Stadium with our smoothies. Hey, look, there's the rocket. And you say, oh yeah, look, there's the bullet. We have this pre-knowledge. But it's within very specific confines. Very specific confines of how the Lord operates in the course of time. How the Lord works. You see? Now remember... All of Egypt, all of Egypt exalted themselves against the Hebrew people. But little by little, they stopped. They advised Pharaoh, let them go, Pharaoh, let them go. The Hebrew God is almighty. But where they stopped, Pharaoh didn't. He kept exalting himself over and over and over. And with self-exaltation comes the hardening of the heart. Turn with me really quick to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. And Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 10. It is also written in verse 10. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So... You made a name for yourself as it is this day. Remember, the Lord is reactionary. He responds to obedience. He responds to wickedness. And he responds to repentance. You see, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 10, you knew that they acted proudly against them. You see? So, you made a name for yourself as it is this day. Remember, the Lord is reactionary. You see? The opportunity was given. But since the opportunity was rejected and they became wicked, remember Pharaoh hardening his heart, hardening his heart, hardening his heart. He chose wickedness and the Lord steps in. Okay, you want to be that way? Okay, boom. 
your heart is hard. You want your heart to get harder and harder and harder and harder by self-exaltation through pride? Okay. Pharaoh's heart became harder and harder and harder and harder. Finally, it became God's judgment where God stepped in. Okay. Now you're stone. Now your heart is stone. And just like the shirt and the rag, you know, you see the repurposing and the Lord does the same. But it's within the confines of choice and events. It's within the confines of one's own marathon. Because it is also written. It is also written. Turn to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. In Exodus chapter 10 verse 3. It is also written. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? You see? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Thus says the Lord, God of the Hebrews. That's what Moses and Aaron, they said that to Pharaoh. It's just like you and me at Dodger Stadium. Not with the hot dogs, it's with the smoothies. God has pre-knowledge. And within the confines of a person's choice and events, even with Pharaoh, God is reactionary. And during people's marathon, God, he's pleading with the people. Pleading with the people. Notice, while Pharaoh is hardening his heart, and while, while Pharaoh is prideful, and while Pharaoh is exalting himself, the Lord also pleads with him. How long, Pharaoh? How long will you refuse to humble yourself? You see, the Most High God pleading with Pharaoh during Pharaoh's marathon. You see? Let's go back to Romans 9. And in Romans 9, Romans 9, And in Romans 9, verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You see. There are theories and there are doctrines that suggest God makes a person believe. God makes a person obey. God has his permissive will, and God has his perfect will and Scripture gets twisted to support a theory. Scripture gets twisted to support a theory. You know, okay, because they're they're looking at Romans 9 like, like the, the hot dog perspective. And they say, okay, God, you know, predestines people to heaven. He predestines people to hell. He he loves Jacob. He he hates Esau. And what they fail to do is account for the it is also written, they fail to account for the Hebrews 12 to understand that during Esau's run, during Esau's marathon, he made terrible choices and he was unholy. You see, profane fornicator. They don't account for that to see, well, why, why is it that God hates Esau? You see the choices that he makes, that Esau makes. And then we see passages where, you know, for, you know, for this purpose that, that God is, is using Pharaoh for this purpose. 
But then at the same time, when you look at the account, when you look at Nehemiah, when you look at Exodus, when you read the account in real time, you see like the Lord is pleading with him the whole time during the marathon. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? How long? Remember, the the pride of Egypt, what we see in Nehemiah, the pride of Egypt. And everybody rejecting the Hebrew people, everybody rejecting the God of the Hebrew people. But in the course of time, when we read the account and everybody's marathon, you start to see hard hearts and they're like, whoa, you know what? You know, our gods can do the water red. Our gods can do the frogs, but the hail, hey, Pharaoh, let them go because our gods are not almighty. The Hebrew God is almighty. And the problem with the people in Egypt is they submitted to Pharaoh who was hardening his heart more and more and more because of his pride and self-exaltation, refusing to humble himself. And they submitted themselves to that. See, they acknowledged the Lord. But they yielded to Pharaoh, exactly like wives do. Not all wives, but some wives, exactly like wives do. They acknowledge the Lord, but they yield to wicked husband. You see? Exactly like men and women do, acknowledging the Lord, but they yield to the wrong pastor. You see? Very important to understand. Very important to understand. And when we factor in the, it is also written, we can see something so beautiful, so glorious. When we factor in the, it is also written, we see God's mercy, his grace, his love, and sadly, we see his long suffering, long suffering, not willing that any should perish as it is written, even making pleas to Pharaoh. How long, Pharaoh, will you refuse to humble yourself? How long, Pharaoh? You see? Now, depending on your present theology, depending on your present theology, depending on the present theories or doctrines that you may have, it may come as a shock to discover that you may have been deceived. Depending on your theology, listen, Do not stay in those churches. If you're in a church where they have a theology that presents Romans 9 incorrectly without factoring in the many, many, many it is also written. We just touched on a few today. We just touched on a a little bit. Do not stay in those churches. Do not stay in those churches. Do not submit yourself to those pastors. Pastor might be a nice guy. He might be a nice guy and he simply doesn't know his scripture. But that presents some questions. Why doesn't he know? And if he doesn't know, what else doesn't he know? And if he's unskilled in the scriptures, should he even be pastor? And if he persists in being pastor, should you submit to him? And then there's the sinister. The pastor's a really nice guy. A really nice guy. But he's also He's fully aware that he serves Lucifer. That's the sinister. And I've had conversation, one in particular, had a long conversation with such a teacher. Such a teacher. It was a long conversation, almost four hours long. It wasn't combative. It was just back and forth. We were exchanging, you know, exchanging 
you know, we're having a conversation and talking about scripture, you know, and the Bible says this here, the Bible says this there, and just going through scriptures. And we were citing scriptures during this conversation. And finally, at the end, I just flat out told him, point blank, I said, listen, you're guilty of idolatry. You're guilty, guilty. Not like, hey, I think that's idolatrous. No, I just flat out told him, you are guilty of idolatry because the Jesus you speak of, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And I'm, I'll never forget his face. I'll never forget his face. You know what happened? He had a wicked smirk, a wicked, his face. I'll never forget it. He smirks and he tells me, I'm the guy the Bible warns you about. That's what he straight up told me. He knew that he was serving Lucifer, but he presented himself as a minister of righteousness. Exactly what the Bible says. Exactly what the Bible says as warning when Paul writes about spiritual warfare and says, listen, these servants of Satan, they come in so secretly and they present themselves as ministers of righteousness, but they come in with another Jesus, another gospel and another spirit. Let me ask you a question. By what spirit, by what spirit would a pastor say, go ahead and take the mark of the beast? By what spirit would a pastor say that? And I'll give you the answer. It's definitely not the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. You see? And so we have this topical message that we look at today. And next week, Lord willing, we'll continue in 1 Samuel chapter 10. But remember, we have to keep in mind the marathon. The marathon. The marathon of Saul. The marathon of Israel. And it's not a setup job. It's not a setup job. God is not predestining, it's not a, a, a predestined to ruin, a predestined to destruction. Because within the confines of events and choice, opportunity is given to acknowledge the Lord. Opportunity is given to acknowledge the Lord. And so we have this pre-knowledge. Remember in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and 9, we have this pre-knowledge of, you know, the Lord saying to Samuel that, it's not going to turn out so well. Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me, says, says the Lord. And Samuel, give the people what they want, but warn them. And when, when, when Samuel warns them, you know, the people just affirm, no, we want a king. And so the Lord says to Samuel, give them what they want. And then we look at chapter 9 and the Lord says to Samuel, hey, that's the guy. That's the guy. He's going to be the ruler that I told you about. The one that was going to bring about ruin and destruction. That's him right there. And so now when you look at chapter chapter 8 and chapter 9, it's like, wow, you know, is, 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 is Saul being set up for destruction? Is, 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 is this a setup job for ruin? Is this a setup job for Israel? Not at all. What the Lord has done with Samuel is the example like we give with the smoothie. The smoothie. Samuel has a pre-knowledge of things that are going to happen. But at the same time, within the confines of events... Saul, he has a choice to make. Israel, they have a choice to make. You see? Very important to understand. And the Lord responds to wickedness. He responds to obedience. And he responds to repentance. He responds to repentance. You see? 
It's within those confines, very specific confines of events and choice, just like we present the marathon. Opportunity is given to acknowledge the Lord. It was given to Pharaoh. It was given to Korah. It was given to Saul. It was given to Judas. It was also given to Paul. It was given to Peter. It was given to Chloe. And it was given to Lydia. You see, some chose wickedness. Some chose repentance. And after choosing repentance, fewer chose obedience. And after choosing obedience, it is only the remnant that chooses endurance to our last dying breath. To the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people of the way, a remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.